This is a recording of Encircled About Eternally in the Arms of His Love. The divine embrace has a thematic symbol of Jesus Christ and His Atonement in the Book of Mormon by Matthew L. Bowen, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Victor Worth. Abstract. This study builds upon Hugh Nibley's insightful observation that several Book of Mormon passages reflect, quote, the ritual embrace that consummates the final escape from death in the Egyptian funerary texts and reliefs, close quote, as expressing the meaning of Christ's atonement. This study further extends Nibley's observations on Jacob's wrestle as a divine embrace to show that Lehi's Nephi's and their successors' understanding of the divine embrace is informed by their ancestors' wrestle with a man, Genesis 32, 24-30, and reconciliation with his brother, Genesis 33, 4-10. Examples of the divine embrace language and imagery throughout the Book of Mormon go well beyond what Nibley noted, evoking the psalm's depiction of Jehovah whose wings offered protection in the ritual place of atonement. Book of Mormon divine embrace texts have much to teach us about Jesus Christ, his love, the nature of his atonement, and the temple. Nephi testified that pure love motivates everything Jesus Christ does, including his holy voluntary atoning work. Quote, He doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world, for he loveth the world even that he layeth down his own life, that he may draw all men unto him. Second Nephi 26.24 As recorded in Ether 12.33-34, Moroni said to the Lord, And again, I remember that thou hast said, that thou hast loved the world, even unto the laying down of thy life for the world, that thou mightest take it again to prepare a place for the children of men. And now I know that this love which thou hast had for the children of men is charity. Wherefore, except men shall have charity, they cannot inherit that place which thou hast prepared in the mansions of thy father. The Savior's words to Nicodemus, as recorded in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and to Orson Pratt on November 4, 1830, in D&C 34.3, Who so loved the world that he gave his own life, confirm that the atonement of Jesus Christ is the supreme expression of the love of the Father and the Son for humankind. As David Seeley has noted, William Tyndall, the first translator of the Bible into English from texts in the original Hebrew and Greek languages, appropriated the non-religious English expressions atone and atonement as fitting theological descriptions of the effect of Christ's redemptive act. Regarding the Hebrew verb most often translated as atone, KPR, Mary Douglas writes, quote, According to the illustrative cases from Leviticus, to atone means to cover or recover, cover again, to repair a whole, Cure a sickness, mend a rift, make good a torn or broken covering. As a noun, what is translated as atonement, expiation or purgation, means integument made good. Conversely, the examples in the book indicate that defilement means integument torn. 
Atonement does not mean covering a sin so as to hide it from the sight of God. It means making good an outer layer which has rotted or been pierced. Tyndall recognized that Christ's act and the Mosaic rites that prefigured it, at one, made at one, covered again or mended the damage in the relationship between God and humankind as further evidenced by his description of Jesus as the atonemaker. The English translation of the Book of Mormon appropriately uses these terms, especially when the underlying sense of KPR is understood. Similar to Tyndall's use of functionally descriptive language, Book of Mormon prophets and writers, beginning with Lehi and Nephi, used the concrete, vivid image of the Lord reaching with outstretched arms, to embrace humankind as a description of the mended and restored relationship with humankind sought by God and made possible by the atonement of Jesus Christ. As a metaphorical, ritual, and eschatological, gestural expression of Christ's love-motivated atonement, the divine embrace reflects the character of Jesus Christ, whose, quote, life was given lovingly by the will of both the Father and the Son, for the redemption of all the rest of us who are not perfect. Quote. The divine embrace also emphasizes that Christ's love is personal and relational. Truman Madsen has observed, quote, In some patterns of worship, it is thought that the way to convey proper relationships to God is to cultivate darkness, magnify distance, use only the kinds of music or words or ceremonial procedure which invoke awe and even irrational fear. The testimony of the restored temple is that God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ yearn not to widen that gap, but to close it. In the house of the Lord, we may come to Him in light, in intimacy, and in holy embrace. And He will, in the words of the prophet Joseph Smith, manifest Himself in mercy in His house. That is love. Close quote. Years ago, Hugh Nibley insightfully suggested that several Book of Mormon passages reflect, quote, the ritual embrace that consummates the final escape from death in the Egyptian funerary texts and reliefs, close quote, as encompassing the meaning of the atonement of Jesus Christ. He particularly cited 2 Nephi 1.15, quote, I am encircled about internally in the arms of his love, close quote. 4.33, O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? And Alma 5.33, the arms of mercy are extended towards them, and he saith, Repent, and I will receive you, as illustrative examples of this concept. Seely, in a subsequent study of the hand and arm of God in the Book of Mormon, also touched on some of these passages. Exegetical examination of these passages and many others in which the divine embrace occurs reveals an even closer relationship to the Jerusalem temple, its hymnic liturgy, i.e. the Psalms, and its system of anticipatory types and symbols. The biblical Psalms are replete with descriptions of Jehovah whose wings, kenapim, offered refuge and protection in the ritual place of atonement. See Psalms 17.8. 36 7, 57 1, 61 4, 63 7, and 91 4. Ritual imagery and language from these temple hymns 
inevitably influenced the Nephite conception of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Nibley rightly noted that the wrestle in Genesis 32 also represents a divine embrace scene. I will endeavor to show that Lehi's, Nephi's, and their successors' understanding of the divine embrace is informed by earlier scriptural accounts, such as Jacob's wrestle with a man, Genesis 32, 24-30, and his subsequent reconciliation to and embrace of his brother Esau, Genesis 33, 4-10. I will further undertake exegetical examinations of 2 Nephi 1, 15, 4, 33, Jacob 6, 5, Enos 1, 2, and 27, Mosiah 16, 12, Alma 5.33 and 34.16, 3rd Nephi 9.14, 10.4-6, Mormon 5.11 and 6.17. I will examine how they relate to relevant Old Testament divine embrace texts in their ancient Near Eastern context and ancient Israelite context. The inclusion of divine embrace language and imagery by Lehi, Nephi, Jacob, and their prophetic successors has much to teach us about Jesus Christ, his love, the nature of his atonement, and the temple. I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love, Lehi and the love of Christ. Nibley further observed that, quote, one retained his identity after the ritual embrace, yet that embrace was nothing less than a Wessensverschmelzung, a fusing of identities, of mortal with immortal, of father with son, close quote. In other words, the divine embrace, or ritual embrace, is closely connected with the concept of theosis, deification, or divinization, i.e., the concept that mankind can become divine. As Val Larson and Newell D. Wright have recently shown, the doctrine of theosis is suggested throughout the Book of Mormon in connection with many of its principal figures. The examples of the divine embrace described in this study should be considered with that doctrinal concept in view. One of the prominent examples of the divine embrace in the Book of Mormon, cited by Nibley, is Lehi's declaration to his sons just prior to his death. Quote, but behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. 2 Nephi 1.15 To better understand what Lehi intended to convey by using this imagery, and what his sons would have understood when they heard it, it is necessary to examine Lehi's language in its biblical and ancient Near Eastern context. As John Hilton III has demonstrated, the Psalms and language from the Psalms are used abundantly by Book of Mormon prophets and writers. Thus, we can reasonably infer that some form of a psalter existed on the plates of brass, or minimally, that Lehi and Nephi were thoroughly familiar with its language from worship in the Jerusalem temple. Lehi draws on liturgical language of the Jerusalem temple hymns, quote, But God will redeem my soul from the power of, miyad, literally, from the hand of, the grave, Hebrew, Sheol, Sheol or hell, for he shall receive me, yikacheni, Psalm 49.15. What the psalmist expresses as eschatological hope, Lehi declares to be realized blessings, quote, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. Close quote. Lehi conveys the divine assurance that Sheol, the world of spirits, and common destination of all humans at death, 
would ultimately have no power over him because of the resurrection, reunification of body and spirit enabled by the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lehi pointedly describes his having been received by the Lord as being, quote, encircled about eternally in the arms of his love, close quote. Lehi's description of the Lord's arms encircling him in this protective gesture recalls the protective imagery of Jehovah's wings in the temple as depicted in Psalms 178, 37-7, 57-1, 61-4, 63-7, and 91-4, see below. An ivory plaque shown in figure 1 was discovered at Arslan Taj in northern Syria near Aleppo in 1929 by Francois Thoreau Dangin, and usually is dated between the 9th and 8th centuries BCE. It depicts a divine being, usually identified as Horus, in a divine sanctuary encircled about lovingly and protectively in the arms and wings of two divine beings comparable to biblical cherubim. This artifact gives us some idea of how ancient Israelites, like Lehi and the psalmist, might have conceived of the Lord's protective arms or wings. The Lord's arms in 2 Nephi 1.15 and his wings in the Psalms both stand as symbol of his protective love for his people, which I will now discuss. O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? Nephi's plea for a divine embrace and at one Elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible and in ancient Near Eastern iconography more broadly, beings from the heavenly realm are often depicted as having wings, see e.g. the seraphim of Isaiah 6 and the cherubim in Exodus 25.20, 37.9, 1 Kings 6.27, 8.6-7, 1 Chronicles 28.18, 2 Chronicles 3.11 and 13, and 5.8. This is consistent with the iconographic picture on ancient Hebrew seals. The Psalms, as the hymns of the Jerusalem temple, symbolically picture Yahweh as a heavenly being with wings, like the seraphim and cherubim. Joseph Smith explained that the wings of heavenly beings in celestial visions, quote, are a representation of power to move, to act, etc. Doctrine and Covenant 77.4 in the Psalms, they are also a concrete symbol of divine protection. Quote, Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Kenapekah, Psalm 17.8 How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust, take refuge, Yechazayun, under the shadow of thy wings. Kenapekah, Psalm 36.7, Masoretic Text 8 Quote, be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth, taketh refuge, chaseah, in thee, yea, in the shadow of thy wings, kanapikah, will I make my refuge, echse, until these calamities be overpassed. Psalm 57.1, Masoretic Text 2. Quote, I will abide, sojourn, agora, in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust, take refuge, in the covert of thy wings, Psalm 61.4 Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings, will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after, cleaveth unto, thee, thy right hand, upholdeth, 
grasps Tamika, me. Psalm 63, 7-8, Masoretic Text 8-9. through Quote, He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings. Kenopa, shalt thou trust, shalt thou take refuge. Texet, Psalm 91, 4. When Latter-day Saints consider the promises offered in modern temples and the companionship of the Holy Ghost that the righteous are entitled to, this ancient temple imagery can bring great comfort today, just as it did to men and women anciently. Othmar Kiel writes, quote, In Psalm 61.4, wings stand parallel to tent. One might think of the wings which characterize the roof of the temple or naus as heaven. Close quote. The image certainly constitutes a temple image. However, the Ruth Boaz narrative sheds additional light on a related way of understanding God's wings. Boaz commends Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi, mother of her deceased husband, and to Naomi's God in language that echoes the foregoing passages in the Psalms. Quote, the Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings, Kenapah, thou art come to trust, to take refuge. Ruth 2.12 Boaz's language foreshadows Ruth's request to Boaz that he fulfill the role of kinsman-redeemer, Goel. At Naomi's instruction, Ruth lays down at the feet of Boaz, where he is sleeping on the threshing floor. See Ruth 3.1-8 Not recognizing Ruth at first, Boaz is startled. Quote, and he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt, kanepeka, literally thy wings, i.e. the hem of thy robe, over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Ruth 3.9 Ruth seeks refuge in Boaz's wings, as if in the Lord's wings. Regarding this incident, Carol von de Torn has observed, quote, In the story of Ruth and Boaz, the heroine asks her future husband to spread his hem over her. For he is Goel, Ruth 3.9. In its literary context, Ruth's request allows more than one interpretation, while it alludes to the words of Boaz in 2.12, Yahweh under whose wings, Kenapah, you have come to seek shelter. It might be construed as a general plea for protection. Close quote. In his own psalm, Nephi uses very similar kinsman redeemer and clothing language to make a similar request. Quote, o Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? Wilt thou deliver me out of the hands of mine enemies? Wilt thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? May the gates of hell be shut continually before me, because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. O Lord, wilt thou not shut the gates of thy righteousness before me, that I may walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict in the plain road? O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness. O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before my enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way, but that thou wouldst clear my way before me, and hedge not up my way, but the ways of mine enemy? Second Nephi 4.31-33 Nephi, in words similar to Ruth 2.12 and 3.9, and Echoing the words of his father in Psalm 49, petitions the Lord to redeem his soul from the power or gates of Sheol. 
Whether the Book of Ruth was actually on the plates of brass and available for Nephi's use is not clear. The book narrates events, quote, in the days when the judges ruled, Ruth 1.1, but like the book of Judges itself, was written at a later date, using earlier sources. Since the book ultimately explains how a non-Israelite, Moabite woman, became an Israelite and an ancestress of King David, his great-grandmother, see especially Ruth 4.16-22, and the whole Davidic dynasty, it seems likely that the book would have been composed no later than the late pre-exilic period, perhaps during the time of Josiah, when the explanation and justification of non-Israelite, non-Judahite elements in David's ancestry would have still been needful or relevant in the kingdom of Judah. If the book of Ruth was composed during Josiah's time, or in the late monarchic period, in the years prior to Lehi's departure, it could have been on the brass plates that the family took with them. In any case, there's a strong consonance between the language of Ruth 2.12 and 3.9, particularly in Ruth's plea, and Nephi's plea for redemption and protective encircling in the Lord's robe. Nephi's immediate enemies, in the context of 2 Nephi 4, of course, are Laman and his followers, who joined the great enemies Mot and Sheol, or death and hell, in seeking Nephi's life. Like Lehi and the psalmist, Nephi petitions the Lord to receive him. Where Lehi had been, quote, encircled about in the arms of God's love, close quote, Nephi pleads to be encircled around in the robe of the Lord's righteousness. Like Ruth, he implores the kinsman redeemer to cover him with the hem of his robe. On one hand, Nephi's plea might seem to be a request to be, quote, clothed with the garments of salvation, close quote, and, quote, covered with the robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61.10 i.e. invested in a priestly robe as sacred protective clothing, temple clothing. On the other hand, Nephi might also be asking to be enfolded in the Lord's own robe, that is, drawn into his protective embrace. Cleave unto God as he cleaveth unto you, while his arm of mercy is extended toward you. Jacob's invitation to receive the divine embrace. Jacob's life as a temple priest appears to have been marked out early for him. Lehi, his father, blessed him that, quote, Thy days may be spent in the service of thy God, 2 Nephi 2.3. This service, Hebrew abodah, appears to have been the service of the Nephite temple cult. Accordingly, Nephi states that he, quote, did consecrate Jacob and Joseph, that they should be priests and teachers over the land of my people, 2 Nephi 5.26. See also Jacob 1.18. Jacob gives some indication that his activities were centered in and around the temple in several passages. He prefaces the temple sermon that follows in Jacob 2 with these words, quote, Wherefore I, Jacob, gave unto them these words as I taught them in the temple, having first obtained mine errand from the Lord, Jacob 1.17. Early on in that temple sermon, with probable reference to priestly temple vestments, he declares, quote, Now, my beloved brethren, I, Jacob, according to the responsibility which I am under to God, to magnify mine office with soberness, and that I might rid my garments of your sins, I come up into the temple this day, that I might declare unto you the word of God. Jacob 2.2, 2, C.F. Jacob 1.19 Later in the sermon, he recalls the Lord's explicit instructions to address the people in the temple. Quote, For behold, as I inquired of the Lord, 
Thus came the word unto me, saying, Jacob, get thou up into the temple on the morrow, and declare the word which I shall give thee unto this people. Jacob 2.17 Given Jacob's role as a priest, whose duties required him to be often in the temple, it should come as no surprise that the language of ancient Israel's temple hymns threads through Jacob's writings. For example, Jacob quotes or alludes to Psalm 95.8, Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. And 11, quote, Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. In Jacob 1.7, Wherefore we labored diligently among our people, that we might persuade them to come unto Christ, and partake of the goodness of God, that they might enter into his rest, lest by any means he should swear in his wrath that they should not enter in, as in the provocation in the days of temptation while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. There are echoes of Psalm 116.3, The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell gat hold upon me. In Jacob 3.11, Shake yourselves, that ye may awake from the slumber of death, and loose yourselves from the pains of hell. The language of Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works, close quote, possibly occurs in Jacob 4.10, He counseleth in wisdom and in justice, and in great mercy over all his works. Close quote. Jacob unquestionably quotes Psalm 95.7, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Close quote. In Jacob 6.6, 6, Yea, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, for why will ye die? Close quote. This language becomes particularly significant in Jacob 6. See below. As an epilogue to his quotation of Zena's allegory of the olive tree, Jacob 5, Jacob reflects, And how merciful is our God unto us! For he remembereth the house of Israel, both roots and branches, and he stretches forth his hands unto them all the day long. And they are a stiff-necked and a gainsaying people, but as many as will not harden their hearts shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Jacob 6.4 Jacob re-echoes the words of Zenos from the allegory, quote, But what could I have done more in my vineyard? Have I slackened mine hand, that I have not nourished it? Nay, I have nourished it, and I have digged about it, and I have pruned it, and I have dunged it, and I have stretched forth my hand almost all the day long, and the end draweth nigh. Jacob 5.47 these words are consonant with the Lord's complaint in Isaiah 65.2, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people. Jacob uses the image of these texts of the Lord reaching out a divine embrace to emphasize Christ's patient and long-suffering love for his covenant people. In many cases in the Hebrew Bible and the Book of Mormon, the outstretched hand indicates divine judgment or punishment. Compare Isaiah's refrain, quote, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Quote. However, in this case, the stretched forth or outspread hands betoken the Lord's loving exertions on behalf of his people and his desire for his people's return. Jacob's words further recall Nephi's woe oracle in 2 Nephi 28.32, where Nephi uses arm rather than hand. Quote, Woe be unto the Gentiles, saith the Lord God of hosts, 
For notwithstanding I shall lengthen out mine arm unto them from day to day, they will deny me. Nevertheless I will be merciful unto them, saith the Lord God, if they will repent and come unto me. For mine arm is lengthened out all the day long, saith the Lord God of hosts. Close quote. Nephi's next words include a quotation from Isaiah 11.11, which describes the Lord setting or exerting his hand again in mercy to gather Israel, 2 Nephi 29.1. After recalling the image of the Lord's outspread hands in Jacob 6.4, Jacob goes even further in the next verse, quote, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I beseech of you in words of soberness that ye would repent, and come with full purpose of heart, and cleave unto God, as he cleaveth unto you. And while his arm of mercy is extended toward you in the light of the day, harden not your hearts. Yea, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, for why will you die? Jacob 6.5 Jacob alludes to a biblical psalm, albeit less plainly to us, because of the KJV translator's rendering of the Hebrew verb dabak, Quote, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings, kenapika, will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after, cleaveth unto, dabika, thee. Thy right hand, yaminika, upholdeth me, tamika. Close quote. Psalm 63, 7-8, Masoretic Text 8-9. through Compare the New American Standard Bible, NASB's, lucid rendering of this passage. Quote, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand takes hold of me. Close quote. The verb dabak is the same one found in the Genesis 2 ideological declaration on divine marriage. Quote, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave, wedabak, unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Genesis 2.24 it describes the closeness of a relationship characterized by an embrace. Describing the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the Temple, the Place of Atonement, the chronicler depicts their wings as cleaving or joining together as if in an embrace. Quote, and one wing of the other cherub was five cubits reaching to the wall of a house, and the other wing, Wehakanab, was five cubits also joining cleaving, Debeka, to the wing, Liknop, of the other cherub, Second Chronicles 3.12. Here again, the NASB renders this passage even more lucidly. Quote, the wing of the other cherub, of five cubits, touched the wall of a house, and its other wing, of five cubits, was attached to the wing of the first cherub. Quote. The concept of cleaving to God is found elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. Deuteronomy records Moses saying to the Israelites who were about to enter the land of promise, quote, But ye that did cleave, hadebekim, unto the Lord your God, are alive every one of you this day. Quote. Deuteronomy 4.4 In one of his final speeches to ancient Israel, Joshua exhorted the people, quote, But cleave, tidbaku, unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. Joshua 23.8 Jacob adds the image of the Lord's, quote, arm of mercy, close quote, being extended toward his readers, ensuring that they understand the invitation to cleave to the Lord as more than an invitation to remain loyal to his covenant. In other words, the Lord's act of extending his arms is not simply a theological symbol of divine love, 
but an actual demonstration of divine affection. The picture is one of God, Jehovah, inviting his people to hold fast to him in an embrace. It is vividly relational and personal. In stating, quote, while his arm of mercy is extended toward you in the light of day, harden not your hearts, close quote, Jacob returns to the language of Psalm 95, the royal enthronement psalm he used early on in his personal record. Compare Psalm 95, 7-11 and Jacob 1, 7-8. This constitutes part of his stated purpose in writing, quote, We labor diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God, that they might enter into his rest, lest by any means he should swear in his wrath that they should not enter in, as in the provocation in the days of temptation while in the wilderness. Quote. Jacob's use of Psalm 63, 7-8 and Psalm 95, 7-11 envisions the divine embrace at the threshold of the most holy part of the temple, the place of the Lord's rest, my rest, Menuchati, Psalm 95, 11, of which the land of promise also constituted a congruent symbol. Enos's wrestle and reconciliation to Christ. Enos, the son of Jacob, describes a wrestle before God that prepared him to eventually be received into the Lord's rest. See Enos 1, 2 and 27. Enos writes, quote, And I will tell you of the wrestle which I had before God before I received a remission of my sins. Enos 1, 2. Enos, whose name denotes man, draws heavily on the Genesis 32-33 account of the patriarch Jacob's wrestle with a divine man at a place he names Peniel, the face of God. Quote, and Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled Weabek, a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him, Beha Abiko, Genesis 32, 24-25. The Hebrew verbs Aleph Bet Kaf, wrestle, and Chet Bet Kaf, embrace, both used in Genesis 32-33, through 33, may be related to Akkadian Epekum, to embrace, grow over, round. Hugh Nibley saw a direct connection between the wrestle and the divine embrace. Quote, One of the most puzzling episodes in the Bible has always been the story of Jacob's wrestling with the Lord. When one considers that the word conventionally translated as wrestled, yavek, can just as well mean embrace, and that it was in this ritual embrace that Jacob received the new name and the bestowal of priestly and kingly power at sunrise, Genesis 32, 24-30, the parallel to the Egyptian coronation embrace becomes at once apparent. Close quote. In Genesis 33, following Jacob's transformative wrestle at Peniel, face of God, Jacob and Esau embrace. Quote, and Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Genesis 33, 4. Jacob describes the experience in theophanic terms. Quote, I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Close quote. Jacob had earlier declared his intention to atone the face of his brother Esau. Quote, I will appease him, akapera pana, literally, I will cover or atone his face. With the present that goeth before me, 
lepanai. And afterwards, I will see his face, erhe pana. Peradventure he will accept of me, yesa panai. He will lift up my face, Genesis 32.20. Enos sought reconciliation and atonement with his Lamanite brothers and sisters and received promises regarding their restoration in the future. In the nearer term, he receives reconciliation and atonement with his divine brother and kinsman redeemer in language that recalls Jacob's and Esau's embrace. Quote, and I soon go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer, for I know that in him I shall rest, and I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure, and he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. Amen. Enos 1.27 For the arms of mercy were extended towards them, and they would not. Unwillingness to reciprocate the love of God and Christ. The setting for Abinadi's incisive interpretation of Isaiah, Mosiah 14 through 16, was King Noah's court before the king and his corrupt priests, and the starting point for his speech was one of those priests asking for the meaning of Isaiah 52 7 through 10. See Mosiah 12 20 through 24. Abinadi answers the priest's question about the identity of the messenger proclaiming good tidings, peace, and salvation, and, quote, the Lord making bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, close quote, with, quote, all the ends of the earth seeing the salvation of our God, close quote, by quoting Isaiah 53. Abinadi begins his quotation and exegesis of Isaiah 53 with an allusion to the Lord's saving arm, quote, Yea, even doth not Isaiah say, Who hath believed our report? And to whom, Almi, is the arm of the Lord revealed? Mosiah 14.1, Isaiah 53.1 The words translated to whom literally mean upon whom. Thus, upon whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Thus, who hath given credence to that which we heard? And the arm of Jehovah on whom hath it been revealed? Quote, Young's literal translation. As a divine embrace image, Abinadi's use of Isaiah 53.1 may explain why he later returns to the image of the Lord's arms, as an image of divine love, favor, and mercy, as he continues to condemn the unrepentant king and his mostly unrepentant priests. Quote, Having gone according to their own carnal wills and desires, having never called upon the Lord while the arms of mercy were extended towards them. For the arms of mercy were extended towards them, and they would not. They being warned of their iniquities, and yet they would not depart from them. And they were commanded to repent, and yet they would not repent. Mosiah 16.12 Of Noah's priests, only Alma repented, as far as we know. Although the Lord's arms of mercy were extended to all of them, only upon Alma was, quote, the arm of the Lord revealed, close quote. Decades later, his son records a similar experience. The arms of mercy are extended towards them, Christ receiving Alma and us. Alma the Younger became the high priest over the church that his father Alma the Elder had established and built up, but not before he had, quote, gone about secretly with the sons of Mosiah seeking to destroy the church, Mosiah 27.10. 
Alma and the sons of Mosiah became instruments in the hands of God in the conversion and reconversion of many people, including Lamanites. Quote, and behold, when I see many of my brethren truly penitent and coming to the Lord their God, then is my soul filled with joy. Then do I remember what the Lord has done for me, yea, even that he hath heard my prayer. Yea, then do I remember his merciful arm which he extended towards me. Alma 29.10 Alma the younger, like his father, had, quote, repented nigh unto death, close quote. He had been, quote, encircled about by the everlasting chains of death, Alma 36.18, but then had been received in the divine embrace. He had experienced Christ's supernal atoning love and mercy. Celia remarks that, quote, instead of an embrace of love, Satan waits to encircle you about with his chains, that he might chain you down to everlasting destruction. Alma 12.6, see also Alma 5.7 and 9, close quote. Alma thus knew how to minister and administer to a remorseful Zeezrom, who, under the consciousness of his own guilt, quote, began to be encircled about by the pains of hell. Alma 14.6 Alma's response to the divine embrace in mortality determined his eternal destiny. Quote, he has received Alma in the spirit unto himself. Alma 45.19 Similarly, our response to this gesture would determine our final reward. Mormon describes the lesson of the conversion of the Lamanites, to which Alma also alludes in Alma 29.10, thusly, quote, We see that his arm is extended to all people who will repent and believe on his name. Alma 19.36 The converted Lamanites repented and commenced living the doctrine of Christ and were thus received in the divine embrace. Quote, they were encircled about with everlasting darkness and destruction, but behold, he has brought them into his everlasting light, yea, into everlasting salvation, and they are encircled about with the matchless bounty of his love, yea, and we have been instruments in his hands in doing this great and marvelous work. Alma 26.15, CF 2 Nephi 2.15 and 4.33. If we do not receive the divine embrace like Alma Ammon and the Lamanites. It will be, as Nephi stated, quote, because ye ask not, neither do ye knock. Wherefore, ye are not brought into the light, but must perish in the dark. Close quote. Like Lamoni and the brother of Jared, we must come unto the Father and the Son at the veil, and knock, so that the quote, dark veil of unbelief, close quote, between us and them can be parted. See Alma nineteen six, CF second Nephi nine. 41 through 42, Ether 3, 1 through 24, and 12, 19 through 21. The veil itself, in a temple context, can also be seen as a positive Christological symbol, rather than a negative one, as we see in Hebrews 10, 20, where the writer describes, quote, a new and living way which he, Jesus, hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, close quote. It is particularly worthwhile to ponder the divine embrace and its meaning in this context. After his conversion and in the early years of Alma's tenure as high priest and chief judge, he faced crisis after crisis. When he found the church in Zarahemla at a crossroads, or dilemma, Alma 7, 3, and 18, he resorted to his own experience with Christ's redeeming love to teach them about their need for his atonement. Quote, Behold, 
he sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them. And he saith, Repent, and I will receive you. Alma 5.33 Here again we hear the echoes of the Psalms, quote, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, Sheol, or hell, for he shall receive me, Yekacheni, Psalm 49.15 Quote, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand, or thou hast grasped me by my right hand. Achazta beyad Yemeni. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me, Tikacheni, to glory, Kabod. Psalm 73.23-24 Regarding the use of the idiom, Receive me to glory, in this passage, Moshe Weinfeld notes that, quote, Most exegetes agree that the verse refers to a future life. Others see a specific parallel to the Assumption of Enoch. Close quote. The biblical version of the Assumption of Enoch occurs in Genesis 5.24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, or God received him. Lakach oto. Close quote. This verse stands behind the statement in the letter to the Hebrews, By faith Enoch was translated, Greek metatheken, that he should not see death and was not found. Close quote. Hebrews 11.5. In Moses 7, the vision of Enoch, the language of divine reception and translation distinctly conveys the image of a divine embrace. See Moses 7.24, As he did to Enoch and Moses, the Lord, quote, received Alma in the spirit to himself, Alma 45.19, demonstrating how completely Christ's atonement can rehabilitate us and ultimately exalt us. Thus, mercy encircles them in the arms of safety. Hamulek's description of the atonement of Jesus Christ as a divine embrace. One of the clearest and best examples of the divine embrace occurs in Mormon's account of the mission of Alma, Amulek, and their associates to reclaim the Zoramites. In Alma 34, Mormon recounts that after Alma had taught the poorer Zoramites his matchless sermon on faith in Jesus Christ, including planting the word as a seed and prophetic witness of the Son of God, Alma 32-33, Amulek arose, Hebrew kum, as a second witness in fulfillment of the Deuteronomic law of witnesses, quote, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established, yakum, close quote, Deuteronomy 19.5. See also Deuteronomy 17.6. Hamulek certified that everything in the law of Moses testified of Jesus Christ and his infinite and eternal sacrifice. Quote, and behold, this is the whole meaning of the law, every whit pointing to that great and last sacrifice, and that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. And thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name, this being the intent of this last sacrifice to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice, and bringeth about means unto men, that they may have faith unto repentance. And thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice, and encircles them in the arms of safety, while he that exercises no faith under repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. Therefore, only unto him that has faith under repentance is brought about the great and eternal plan of redemption. Alma 34, 
Mercy and justice are sometimes personified in Scripture as actual beings surrounding the Lord's throne. Quote, justice, tzedek, and judgment, umishpat, are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy, chesed, and truth, wa'emet, shall go before thy face. Psalm 89.14 And naught but peace, justice, and truth is the habitation of thy throne. And mercy shall go before thy face and have no end. Moses 7.31 See if also D&C 109.79 Psalm 85.10-11, a text that is sometimes interpreted in terms of the Restoration and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, describes these entities as becoming at one. Quote, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Close quote. Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of justice, mercy, truth, and peace. Thus, mercy's, quote, arms of safety, close quote, that encircle those who have faith under repentance are his arms. His atoning love can make us safe from sin and will ultimately make us safe from death. Elder J.E. Jensen cited Amulek's unique phraseology as an example of, quote, teaching intangibles, close quote, e.g. the atonement of Jesus Christ, quote, with tangibles, close quote. Quote, to better understand arms of safety, it is important to remember that the Savior used tangible things such as coins, seeds, sheep, loaves, fish, and body parts to teach gospel principles. Arms are tangible, and we use them to express affection and love. When I come home from the office, I am encircled in the tangible arms of my wife. I have experienced arms of love and safety throughout my service in Latin America by means of the common greeting, un abrazo, or hug. Quote. Elder Jensen further ties the arms of safety to the doctrine of Christ, noting that, quote, When we were baptized and received the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, we received two ordinances that introduce us to the arms of safety. Close quote. He adds that, quote, By coming humbly and fully repentant to sacrament meeting and worthily partaking of the sacrament, we may feel those arms again and again. Close quote. Mine arm of mercy is extended toward you, and whosoever will come will I receive. The fifth principle of the gospel and the divine embrace. After the Lord explained the destruction of numerous cities following his death, quote, because of their wickedness and abominations, 3 Nephi 9.12, he extended several invitations. Quote, o all ye that are spared, because ye were more righteous than they, Will ye not now return unto me and repent of your sins and be converted, that I may heal you? Yea, verily I say unto you, If ye will come unto me, ye shall have eternal life. Behold, mine arm of mercy is extended towards you, and whosoever will come, him will I receive. And blessed are those who come unto me. 3 Nephi 9, 13-14 Compare also Matthew 5, 23-24 and 3 Nephi 12, 24-25. Noel B. Reynolds has demonstrated that the invitation to come unto Christ, replete throughout the Book of Mormon, is tantamount to an invitation to endure to the end in faith, hope, and charity. C.F. 2 Nephi 31.20 The fifth principle in what Nephi describes as the doctrine of Christ. In other words, it constitutes an invitation to those who have already entered into a covenant relationship with the Lord, 
to continue in the covenant path until coming to the final gate, mentioned in 2 Nephi 9.41, where one knocks to enter the presence of the Lord, 2 Nephi 9.42, and where he receives us. As he did to ancient Israel, including the Lamanites and Nephites, Jesus invites us into his protective embrace and into eternal life. His arms of love, safety, and mercy, like the rod of iron from the tree of life, remain extended toward the repentant. This is temple imagery that should grow in the Latter-day Saints' awareness and appreciation. As a hen gathereth under her wings, Christ's gathering and protective wings. Othmar Keogh believes that, quote, In the final analysis, the image of the wings of God is drawn from the bird that protectively spreads its wings over its young. M.T. 23.37 The Gospel writers record that in the last week of his mortal life, Jesus lamented that Jerusalem's inhabitants refused to be spiritually gathered to him. Jesus resorted to the maternal image of a hen who uses her wings to gather into an embrace, quote, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Matthew 23:37, C.F. Luke 13:34. Recently, Jonathan Rollins has drawn renewed attention to the idea that this imagery has its source in the Hebrew Bible, which uses the image of a mother bird to describe Yahweh. For example, regarding the events of the Exodus and bringing Israel to the mountain temple at Sinai, the Lord averred, quote, I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Exodus 19.4 The element of wings and reception language, I brought you unto myself, are both present. See also Deuteronomy 32.11, Psalm 17.8. Additional words spoken by the voice of Christ in 3 Nephi 10 should be reconsidered in light of the Hebrew Bible passages and especially temple texts that allude to Jehovah's wings. Quote, O ye people of these great cities which have fallen, who are descendants of Jacob, yea, who are of the house of Israel, how oft have I gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and have nourished you? And again, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, yea, O ye people of the house of Israel who have fallen, ye that dwell at Jerusalem as ye that have fallen, yea, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens, and ye would not? O ye house of Israel, whom I have spared, how oft will I gather you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, if ye will repent and return unto me with full purpose of heart? 3 Nephi 10, 4-6 In view of Keel's and Roland's observations, many of those who heard the voice of Christ would have heard the rich temple imagery of Yahweh's wings in his refrains. The people's unwillingness, quote, ye would not, close quote, to be gathered, seemingly reflects an unwillingness to fully partake of the temple and covenant blessings available to them. Many had become so degraded spiritually that they shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. See 3 Nephi 9, 7-11. Those who, quote, had not shed the blood of the saints, 3 Nephi 10, 12, would witness the reality of the fulfillment of Nephi's prophecy with its winged sun-disc imagery. Quote, Behold, they will crucify him, and after he is laid in the sepulchre for the space of three days, he shall rise from the dead with healing in his wings. 
and all those who shall believe on his name shall be saved in the kingdom of God. 2 Nephi 25.13 They would personally participate in the fulfillment of Malachi's similarly worded winged sun disk prophecy. Quote, But unto you that fear my name shall the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. 3 Nephi 25.12 Quoting Malachi 4.2 See especially 3 Nephi 17.9-10 they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus, rejecting the divine embrace. Mormon states that when he was 15 years old, he, quote, was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. Mormon 115. This suggests that Mormon not only experienced a theophany, i.e. the Lord appeared to him, but that he experienced the Lord in a manner similar to what the Lamanites and Nephites experienced in 3 Nephi 17. When giving the account of the destruction of the Nephite people and their rejection of the Lord, Mormon dwells on the image of the divine embrace as an expression of Christ's atoning love that the Nephites had declined to receive. Quote, now behold, this I speak unto their seed, i.e. unto the descendants of the Nephite dissenters who became Lamanites, and also to the Gentiles who have care for the house of Israel, that realize and know from whence their blessings come. For I know that such will sorrow for the calamity of the house of Israel. Yea, they will sorrow for the destruction of this people. They will sorrow that this people had not repented, that they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. Mormon 5, 10-11 Samuel the Lamanite had prophesied that the Nephites would one day lament, quote, Behold, we are surrounded by demons, yea, we are encircled about by the angels of him who hath sought to destroy our souls. Behold, our iniquities are great. O Lord, canst thou not turn away thine anger from us? Helaman 13.37 Mormon recognized that this prophecy had been fulfilled during his time. See Mormon 1.18-19 Mormon's lament at the destruction of his people as he overlooked the slain on the battlefield is even more emotive. Quote, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord, O ye fair ones? How could you have rejected that Jesus, who stood with open arms to receive you? Mormon 6.17 Rejection of Jesus and refusal of his divine embrace was a full rejection of the blessings of the gospel and especially his atonement. The consequences for the Nephite was that they began to quote, delight in everything save that which is good, close quote to their eventual ruin as a people. But it did not have to be so. Christ's open arms bespeak his ever-accessible love. Jesus testified that we are to come to him and the Father. The Father himself runs to us even when we are yet a great way off. That same divine Father will, quote, fall on our neck and kiss us, Luke fifteen twenty. But we really do have to come to them, Jesus was so named because he will save and redeem us from our sins, but he cannot save us in them. Conclusion Lehi and Nephi, both Jerusalemites, who lived somewhere in the vicinity of Solomon's temple, appear to have understood the psalm's symbolic description of taking refuge in Yahweh's wings and the language of redemption in terms of a divine embrace, expressing Jesus Christ's love for his people and at one with them. Their successors, Jacob, Alma, Mormon, etc., 
inherited this same paradigm. The Savior, too, resorted to this language when he invited the Lamanites and Nephites who survived the cataclysm described in the third Nephi to, quote, come unto, close quote, him and be gathered to him as under a hen's wings. These arms and wings symbolize Christ seeking and calling after us in mortality, and we in turn should call to and seek him. The Lord's outstretched arms represent an invitation with a potential embrace, being encircled or clasped in those arms and gathered under those wings, constitutes a fully realized blessing reserved for the righteous who strive to keep his covenant, however imperfectly. One of the key terms associated with the divine embrace is receive, an image also drawn from the Psalms, and a term used to describe Enoch's assumption into heaven. The passages examined here elucidate the divine embrace as a key atonement concept in Book of Mormon Christology. Thus, the proliferation of this theme throughout the Book of Mormon would seem to stand with other well-described literary phenomena as evidence of the antiquity and veracity of the Book of Mormon. Moreover, its recognizable proliferation further illustrates D. John Butler's observation that, quote, we're collectively on the brink of realizing that the Book of Mormon is a temple book. The Book of Mormon was written by temple worshippers for temple worshippers in the imagery of the temple and teaching temple doctrines. Without seeing the temple in it, we can't fully understand the Book of Mormon. Close quote. Latter-day Saints today can envision for themselves how the divine embrace concept relates to practice in modern temple worship. We can picture ourselves with Jesus' disciples at the Last Supper and believe the Savior's promise to them, quote, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. John 14.3 Authors note, I would like to thank Susie Bowen, Godfrey Ellis, Helen Wyatt, Jeff Lindsay, Victor Worth, and Alan Sykes for their help in the publication of this paper. Matthew L. Bowen was raised in Orem, Utah, and graduated from Brigham Young University. He holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and is currently an Associate Professor in Religious Education at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He is also author of Name as Keyword, Collected Essays on Onomastic Wordplay and the Temple in Mormon Scripture. Salt Lake City, Interpreter Foundation and Eborn Books, 2018. And more recently, Ancient Names in the Book of Mormon, Toward a Deeper Understanding of a Witness of Christ. Salt Lake City, Interpreter Foundation and Eborn Books, 2023. With Aaron P. Shade, he is the co-author of The Book of Moses, From the Ancient of Days to the Latter Days. Provo, Utah, Salt Lake City. Religious Studies Center and Deseret Book 2021. He and his wife, the former Suzanne Blattberg, are the parents of three children, Zechariah, Nathan, and Adele. This has been a recording of Encircled About Eternally in the Arms of His Love, the Divine Embrace as a Thematic Symbol of Jesus Christ and His Atonement in the Book of Mormon, by Matthew L. Bowen, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 59, 2023, read by Victor Worth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed. If it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Latter-day Saint scripture 
can be found at journal.interpretofoundation.org. More information about the Interpretive Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.